Colby Daniels podcast presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products, including Kratom, CBD, and Delta 8. If you're unfamiliar with these products or their health benefits, don't hesitate to give Artisan Botanicals a call. They have a staff that's dedicated to helping you live a better life. 405-458-9699. Plus, we are saving you 15% when you order online abotanicalcompany.com use the discount code Colby Show at checkout C-O-L-B-Y-S-H-O-W discount code Colby Show at checkout to save 15% off your online order abotanicalcompany.com alright Baylor is your national champion Baylor over Gonzaga last night to close out the NCAA tournament uh, very deserving championship for the Baylor Bears. And uh, congrats to our buddy John Morris, the Baylor play-by-play voice who joined us yesterday. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, college basketball in general, the Porter Moser hire, uh, which I promised you guys we'd get to yesterday. So here is our weekly Tuesday guest, Eric G. It is Tuesday, which means it is weekly Tuesday guest, Eric G. joining the podcast. Eric, what's happening? Oh, a lot's going. A lot is always going on. When, when you call me, there, there's just so much to to mine and talk about. I know you got a lot you want to discuss, but real quick, I want you to help me out with the Pat Jones show today. If you don't, if you don't mind, yeah, yeah, we let's are do it. going to a, Okay, we are going to attempt to define what makes somebody legendary, and that is a hard question. So, real quick, give me three names of guys that you would just consider absolute legends, no question, slam dunk, and three guys you think are really good but aren't necessarily legends. And just real quick, tell me kind of why certain people are legends and why certain guys don't quite meet that criteria. And the really good guys could actually be Hall of Famers because I don't think being a Hall of Famer necessarily makes you a legend. So off the top of your head, go. Okay, so Michael Jordan, legend, right? Right. Um, Wilt Chamberlain, legend. Magic Magic Johnson, legend. No doubt. Okay. Now, three guys that are good, but not legends. Uh, Let's go Charles Barkley. Let's go Carl Malone. And let's go Patrick Ewing. Ooh, interesting, because two of those guys I would definitely consider legends. Okay. I think if you're a Knicks I think if you're a Knicks fan, Ewing is a legend. And if you're a Jazz fan, Carl Malone and John Stockton are the only two legends you have really in that organization. Which brings up which which gets to the heart of this question and why it's such an interesting discussion. Because a guy like Bob Stoops in Oklahoma he's probably considered a legend. But if you're a Notre Dame or USC or an Alabama or a Texas fan, you probably just consider him a really good coach, a Hall of Famer, a guy that did good things at Oklahoma, but you wouldn't mention him in the same breath with Bud Wilkinson and Barry Switzer. Despite the fact that I can make an argument on any given day that Bob Stoops is the best coach in OU history, I think he probably falls outside of, of, of that legendary status to people who are not OU fans or or necessarily in Oklahoma or maybe even in the Big 12. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's fair. Um, you know, go, going back to my group even, I, I guess it depends on, I mean, if you want to just group together the history of the New York Knicks, then Patrick Ewing is a legend among that group. Um, I, I, right. I guess it just depends on perspective, right? Because if, if the guys that I mention, if you line those guys up, I, I don't think the three guys that I mentioned first are in the same tier as the three guys I mentioned second. I think they're clearly on a, on a different level. Um, and they accomplish things that I think supersede what just normal Hall of Fame players achieved. So that's why I put them in that legendary status. Um, but like like you said, I think it, it, when you just talk about Utah Jazz greats, then yeah, Carl Malone, I think among those peers is considered maybe a legend. So um, I think it's probably a matter of perspective and maybe who you're comparing people against to uh, to whether or not you get that. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. The other thing, it's got to be about more than numbers. There has to be something else about you that makes you legendary. Like in baseball, would you consider Jim Tomey a legend? No. Okay, this guy has 600 home runs and he's right. in the Hall of Fame. Right. And he's in the Hall of Fame. King Griffey Jr. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I totally agree. There, there is, you know, when somebody says Jim Tomey's name, <laughs> it doesn't have the off factor, right, right, that Ken Griffey Jr. does. And for Jr., it wasn't just the fact that this guy was, uh, you know, a five-tool player and was a lot of fun to watch. There was a swagger about him. There was the smile. He was the new generation baseball. He. Derek Jeter are the two guys that rose above the, the, the steroid era. And he just, that swing, I mean, that swing alone makes him a legend. Um, and like when you talk about Malone versus Jordan, like even if Carl Malone won a couple of championships in Utah, even if they had beaten the Bulls, you're still not going to you're not going to get that chill up your spine when people mention his name the way that you will. When, when, I mean, when, when you say Michael Jordan, there's, there's something there. It's almost Nick like you Saban. need some sort of like personality trait that, that makes you yes. seem like you're larger than life. Right. Right. And Nick Saban has that. It's not just the championships, although they certainly do add to his cachet. There's a way Nick Saban carries himself. That will put him that, that puts him almost right next to bear bear Bryant. They're, they're very, they're very similar. Like Bryant was a larger than life character with the houndstooth hat and the coat. And you look at him and he's all grizzled and you're like, man, that is a football coach. That dude is a football coach. He was, he's yeah. a, I mean, you look at him, he, he is what, if, if you could just, what a football coach should look like. Bear Bryant probably the first thing that comes to your mind. And then for the modern era, Nick Saban is the first thing that comes to your mind. He defines the way that they are. Um, arrogant, and I mean that not necessarily in a in a bad way. He can be condescending, and yeah, I do mean that in a bad way. He's arrogant, <laughs> condescending. He's he's guarded. He's I mean he is he is more guarded than any other college coach. Matter of fact, the only coach that's as guarded as he is is Bill Belichick. 
in, in any sport. Even Greg Popovich isn't as guarded as Nick Saban is. But that's what the modern coach is. He is very reflective of the machine that is college football and the content control that these universities have yeah. over what gets out, what doesn't get out. And when he walks into a room, all eyes are going to go to him. Yeah. Whereas you take a guy like Lincoln Riley. Now, granted, Lincoln Riley's only been a coach for four years, but I don't think even even if Lincoln Riley were to win, say, six, seven national championships at OU, I don't believe that when he walks into a room, it's going to have the same effect as Nick Saban will. They're like, hey, there's Lincoln Riley. Cool. Yeah, different, and, different personalities. Yeah, he is Lincoln Riley, and I mean, I do mean this as a compliment. He feels like a guy I can approach. Like, even if he isn't the most exciting interview in the world, which he's not, um, actually, none of the OU coaches are now, but and, and that is a lot by design. But I do feel like I could approach Lincoln Riley. Like, if I were to come up to him and say hi, yeah. we, he'd be more than willing to carry on a four or five minute conversation about. If if I really wanted to pick his brain about, like, if I wanted to go to Lincoln Riley and say, okay, explain to me on this play why the receiver is doing this or why the running back is doing a, a, a specific thing. Like, I'm just trying to better understand. I don't think he'd have a problem explaining that to me. Right. You know, he would he would probably break it down as, okay, did they kind of hear this because this is the result that you're looking for. Where Nick Saban, once that press conference is over, if you need extra, <laughs> like you just don't, <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, we're good. Yeah, I don't want to know how Nick going. I was going to ask him about his daughter and how she was doing. I heard that there were some, you know, she was having some problems, but I don't want to now. <laughs> I, I think what, what that shows also is that people value authenticity, and I feel like both of those guys are authentic. I think Nick Saban is true to yes. who he is, and I think Lincoln Riley is true to, yes. who he, to, is true to who he is. And look, they both have incredible success from a recruiting standpoint, right? Like, people yeah. are looking for different things out of head coaches and out of programs, but the one thing that everybody values is authenticity. And look, you may not like Nick Saban's style, but you appreciate the fact that he is the way he is because that's him. Same thing with Lincoln Riley. So, yeah, I think that's the, the commonality there is is authenticity. Well, and it all came about because it was Roy Williams. And, and I put on the rundown today, is Hubert Davis replacing a legend? Like, I had to be reminded that Roy Williams won three national championships three titles, in North Carolina. Yeah. And I always, I mean, look, through no fault of Roy's, I always think of him as the Kansas coach because he was the Kansas coach when I was at OU. Right. And a guy that I played high school football with played for a Final Four team that, that, that Roy Williams coached. So there is. You know, there there is a Kansas connection. And at Kansas, he never won a national championship. And I think if you were to look at his body of work, his body of work is probably better than Dean Smith's body of work. Because Dean Smith won two, went to 11 Final Fours, and there were a lot of people that criticized Dean. like, he's got all this talent, he never won the national championship. And because of the way the NCAA, because of the way NCAA basketball is constructed with that tournament being so important, you can make the argument that Roy did more. Still, yeah. when you say the word Dean Smith, it resonates more 
than, than Roy Williams. And maybe the younger generation is different. Maybe the younger generation of Carolina, the younger generation of Carolina has enough ammo to go with their parents and their older brothers about how Roy was better than Dean Smith. But in that argument, what you've got to know is you're never going to sway them to come around to your side. It's like, if you're a LeBron fan, there's enough ammo out there to beat any Michael Jordan fan in an argument, but you're never going to get them to come around to your side. And they're never going to have the reverence for LeBron that they will Michael Jordan. But I think both guys are definitely legends. And Roy Williams, to me, he's, He's a fringe legend guy. Like Bobby Knight, that dude is legendary. Can't stand him, but he's legendary. Yeah. And again, you know, Roy's that guy. I mean, Roy always carried himself in a very respectable way, but I think I could have probably pulled Roy aside for three minutes after a press conference and say, hey, you said something. Can you expand on this real quick? I'm just trying to get a better understanding of where you're going. And I don't think, you know, had they won, he would have mind doing it. You know, Bobby right. Knight, right. yeah, probably not. He's walking <laughs> off. Dean Smith, I don't know. I mean, Dean Smith, there was a, just, just this thing about Dean Smith. You just didn't want to take up any more of the man's eyes. Right. I mean, like he like came and blessed you with his, his presence and smiled and was funny, and now he's leaving. It's just it's a curtain call. That's it. There's no more. You don't want to know any more about the man behind the curtain. So it's just, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a discussion with not, or you're never going to have a right or wrong answer, but it's just interesting to see what people are thinking when you're asking them about who is a legend. I mean, in your mind, who is that person that you just just sit there in awe of? And I, you know, for ODU fans, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Bob Stoops, Barry Switzer, Bud Wilkinson for sure. But this Stoops for most ODU fans is he is he a legend? I would think so. But I don't know about most college football fans. I, I don't know that he, he falls into that category. Yeah, I think there are, there's also something where they have to be gone long enough for what they accomplish to kind of like grow into something somewhat like mythological. Yeah. And like, I, has Bob been gone long enough for that to take place? Like, I don't know that he's been out of the sport long enough for there to be that sort of... But But then again, I mean, when you think his championship was... 20 years ago so maybe so yeah um the championship was 20 years ago i I do think it hurts bob having as many cracks at it as he did and and not breaking through one more time yeah yeah that's a tough one um i would probably lean toward yes there but I, i totally get the argument against it and you know with with the roy williams thing think about this I mean, for as much as you want to talk about the Kansas thing, if Chris Jenkins doesn't his, hit a buzzer beater, we're talking about four championships. Wow. <laughs> just, yeah, just at North Carolina. So, um, yeah, yeah Roy, Roy Williams. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Four, three national championships at North Carolina. And, and like you're right, he could have had four. And yet, I, I wonder, does his time at Kansas, does that detract a little bit? It probably does a little bit because there were so many times where, like, I, I think my my biggest memory of Roy Williams at Kansas was, like, feeling like they were the best team in the country and then they get knocked out in the Sweet 16, right? Like, it always just kind of, that that was the, I think that's the overall feeling about Roy Williams' time there. 
And he obviously accomplished a lot more. I mean, he made tournament runs, but I, I, it just seemed like there were there were just multiple situations where you felt like, hey, they might have the best team in the entire country. And then, like, opening yeah. weekend, they're done, and you're like, what the hell happened? How, how on earth are they not playing anymore? So maybe that's it. Was he the was he still the head coach of the Collis and Heinrich team that lost to to Mello? Was that his last year? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. That was the infamous I don't give a shit about Carolina right now. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah. Yeah, that was that that was it. And I mean, he did the Kansas it always seemed like they ran into some really bad luck. Yeah. In the final four, it's like you know they're they're humming along, they're really good, and then somebody just outplays them. Yeah, you know, and, and yeah, but yeah, that that Collison team, I agree with you. I thought they were the best team. Yeah, for in the sure. country, and they and that year that OU, the year that OU and Kelvin went to the final four, they also went to the final four. Did they get knocked out by was it Maryland that knocked them out? That sounds Maryland right. beat them in the yeah, semi. Sounds right. Yeah, Maryland beat them in the in the semifinal, and then beat Indiana in the final. Though you played so poorly, I, right? I, by the way, for Kelvin, that's two Final Four appearances and two Final Four appearances uh, where you got sh- shellacked. Yeah, <laughs> my my team. Well, then there was and um, one of them you, you shouldn't have the Jacques Vaughn Rafe LaFrance years, where I think you know they were also among the teams that probably should have been considered to, to win a national championship and fell short. Yeah. Paul Pierce. So, yep. So I think when you're, when you're looking at his overall body of work, the question has to be asked, how did he come close to winning four national championships at Carolina and never got one at Kansas? How, yeah. how on earth did that happen? Yeah, I was actually having this conversation about not winning championships a, a few weeks ago because, and you mentioned Dean Smith, and it's a great point because you know Dean Smith won that title in the early '90s with a North Carolina team that I don't think anybody would say is maybe even in his top five best teams um, with Montrose no. and and uh, who else was on in that group? Um, Reese. And- oh, that was the. That was the bunch that beat Michigan. Donald Williams, what, yeah, Nick? yeah, yeah. That was the yeah they beat Michigan, and then like two years later, they had that group that went to the Final Four with Stackhouse and Rasheed Wallace that lost in the Final Four, and then like three or four years later, they had the Anton Jameson, Vince Carter team that lost in the Final Four. I mean, those teams were infinitely better than the team that won the championship in the early '90s, and you know that's just the it's it's just funny the way that. Sometimes those things work. And look, same thing for Coach K, right? Like, remember that Kyle Singler, Nolan Smith team that beat Butler to win the championship? Like, that, I, I, I would say that's probably not even close to being one of Coach K's top five teams. But it's a championship No. Team. Yeah. At which, I mean, goes to show you about the NCAA tournament that it's such a game of chance. Right. And about matchups. And again, in a one and done situation, all you got to do is, you know, it, 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 any game, any game can be won or lost simply by one team just outplaying the other one on that particular night. Doesn't necessarily mean they're the better team. It doesn't mean if you put them in a seven game series that that other team doesn't win four out of those seven, but that's not the way the tournament is set up. 
And unfortunately, coaches' careers are made and broke based on the success of maybe the most random sporting event that we have in this country. Yeah. But it's also why people love it so much, right? It's why the it's right. the drama every single game is at a at a peak level that, that just can't be matched. And it unfortunately last night we did not get that. Yeah. <laughs> we we did on yeah. Saturday, but we did we did not get that last we didn't get that last night. And I don't know about you, I don't know how I feel about Baylor winning a national championship. There's something about that that's still pretty icky to me, considering because everything of the football that's stuff? gone. Football stuff, the stuff that happened with Dave Blitz, even though you know, I didn't realize yeah. Scott Drew's been there since 2003. I know, right? Scott Drew's been there 18 years. Um, but it's just, Baylor's just kind of a, it's a school that, when you say their name, you got to get in the shower and just watch that Baylor off. That's what Baylor has. Be, that's what Baylor signifies right now. And of all the schools in the Big Twelve that have a big ticket national championship, why them? <laughs> why not Tech? Why not Oklahoma State or Iowa State or Kansas or you know obviously OU? But Baylor. Like, even if you're an OU fan, you can probably stomach Texas winning a national championship easier than you can stomach Baylor winning a national championship because it's, it's still think all that bench from Art Brile is so fresh in everyone's mind. And you just, with the university that has the history that they do, you, you're always going to wonder how authentic it is. And that is probably very unfair to Scott Drew. It's unfair to those kids. But that's what Baylor has earned itself. It's earned itself of the the reputation of you being able to question everything they do and wondering when the other foot's going to drop. That That's interesting because for me, I, I guess I, I just completely separate, I think, the basketball and the football programs where – it, even though Dave Aranda has nothing to do with the Art Bryles thing, I, I think they're probably, because it's still so soon after, I think it, it probably would have some sort of, well, you know, I say that, and Matt Rule was in the Big 12 championship just a couple years ago, and I, I thought it was a yeah. terrific story. So, I don't know. I, I think maybe maybe Matt Rule's success, and because he was such a good dude, has kind of made turned a corner in that department. Maybe maybe that's why I, I, don't, I don't feel the same way necessarily. I, I just kind of feel like that chapter has had closed and, and we're on to something completely different now. And I, to me, it's just, it's, it's overall history. And look, yeah. I go back with that school, back to their, their Southwest Conference days. And, and a lot of this comes from, you know, when I was a kid growing up and background on my family we were we we are methodist and raised in a methodist you know i was always raised in the methodist church and living in the dfw area you know our sentiments for anybody in the southwest conference always went to smu well there were always these there were these kids speaking of dirty programs yes very dirty (laughs) programs it's like hey they're methodist we're going to root for the methodist school it's just what we do despite the fact that you know all of us were, were from oklahoma but I had all these these friends that went that I went to church with, whose brothers and sisters and, and moms and dads all went to Baylor, and it was just Baylor, 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 Baylor. How great Baylor is! And 
you know, they found out that I root for, you know, they give me crap for SMU, but then they really give me crap for Oklahoma. Well, it's a dirty program, you know, Oklahoma's a dirty program, and, you know, that they have to cheat to win in football and in basketball, and at that time, OU was really good at both. They were playing for a national championship in, in both sports. And I just laugh at the hypocrisy of, of Baylor, their fans, their school about we're a Southern Baptist University. We're going to be, you know, up, you know, we're all about upstanding and right. Yeah. And then you hire a football coach that, you know, w- when it came to sexual assault, wasn't exactly going, going to put his best players in position where they could be arrested or, or, or would even have to talk to police when the accusation came and you had a president. Um, a president who, by the way, went after Bill Clinton and Ken Starr, went after Bill Clinton over everything that happened with Monica Lewinsky and him lying under oath. He held Bill Clinton to speak to the fire for being an immoral person. And then when it came to Baylor and everything going on there, he just kind of turned the other cheek. So there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of ickiness that that for me, at least, is very hard to get over with that school. Yeah. So last night, while wanting the Big 12 to win and not necessarily wanting to see a West Coast Conference school win because I am that snob, it it was difficult. There were times like, man, I just can't bring myself to root for Baylor. Can't bring myself to root for Scott Drew. Um, and just, I just couldn't do it. I, I couldn't I, root for, for, for either one of those teams I just did, I, I've enjoyed watching that team for the last two years so much that that probably also helps. Um, I mean, for two years, that team has just played at this exceptionally high level. And and look, sometimes there are good teams that aren't necessarily fun to watch. I think with Baylor, it's a they good are. team that is absolutely fun to watch. So to me, that makes them very likable. I think that's a very likable team, uh, for me at least, and and based on on what I enjoy. So um that that probably also helps, but but look, I, I I get the sentiment there, and sometimes it's hard to let go of those things. I mean, there are still people that hear Penn State and just are are completely turned off by those two words in the same sentence, right? It, there are people that will forever think Miami is the dirtiest program in college athletics. I mean, it's that's I think once your name is attached to that, like I just made the SMU joke. Once your name is attached yeah. to something like that, for some people, I think that's it, it's extremely hard to shake. It is. And I think for a lot of people, um, Baylor is always going to fall into one of those categories. Um, there are those that, that OU falls into that category. For, for everything that happened during the Switzer years, they're, they're not extremely – they're never going to look at OU as anything but kind of an outlaw program. Yeah. Um, there are those that the Joe Mixon thing is, is, is going to still make the, them sick to their stomach. By the way, throw me in that category. But it's interesting with Baylor. I mean, you were talking about the athletic, you talking about the athletic prowess of them. I got a, and this says more about college basketball than it does anything else. I still wonder how did Scott Drew, how did all the, how did the most athletic team in college basketball end up in Waco? <laughs> like, how did that happen? How did that not happen in Lexington, Kentucky, or Durham, North Carolina, or um, where is it? Uh, Bloomington, is it Bloomington, Indiana, where Indiana is? Yeah. I mean, Lawrence, Kansas. I mean, those places are supposed to have the biggest, 
most athletic teams, and yet it ended up in Waco, and he had the overall best collection of talent in college basketball maybe the last two years. Yeah, I mean, they were on a completely not, uh, other level from Gonzaga. I don't think Gonzaga could have played that team ten times and won more than a game. Yeah, if that. I, I, I mean, and when I, they would, I think that they would have taken a couple in a in a ten game series, but. There was clearly a massive edge to Baylor just from a physicality standpoint. And look, I, I talked to John Morris yesterday, the Baylor play-by-play guy, uh, and you know we knew both of these teams have a lot of really talented perimeter players, but I asked him about the the post situation and and what he felt about that matchup, and he he basically said, "I don't know," and I think you know whoever wins that matchup is who's going to win the game. And I, I didn't get the feeling like he felt like Baylor was going to dominate the interior the way they did last night. I certainly didn't have that impression. I thought, if anything, that's where Drew Timmy might have the opportunity to be, you know, really big and really impactful. And the fact that he was completely dominated when it came to anything happening in the paint was, I, I, I mean, that's just the punctuation mark on what made Baylor so great last night. Drew, Drew Timmy just he dropped like a rock in the NBA draft last night. If you watched 1, him all part of it, the thing, 1,000%. If you watched him in the tournament, the, the, there are a few things you noticed about him. One, he's a very smart player, but I would say that about anybody on Gonzaga. I give Mark Few a lot of credit because basketball IQ-wise, there wasn't anybody in the tournament that I, I felt played as smart as basketball and had as much ball movement as Gonzaga did. And their offense when they ran it was absolutely beautiful to watch with all the cuts and the passes. I mean, these guys were, were on it. They were magicians. But Timmy had this great footwork. He had this, this this uncanny ability that when you got him the ball in the paint, it didn't matter who was on him. He could figure out a way to make them miss and create his own shot. And I just kept think, thinking to myself, looking at his body, it's like, okay, is he physical enough to withstand the beating that he's going to take in the NBA? Can he play in the paint and be as effective in the association as he is in college basketball? And when I got this matchup with Baylor, I'm like, all right, here's the telltale sign. We're going to find out tonight if you're an NBA general manager and you're watching him, are you thinking of him as a four? Are you thinking of him as a guy that can play the three and a guy that can play the four? And if I put him down on the block, he can go toe-to-toe with someone or at least with that footwork cause them issues when they're guarding him. And the answer to that was an astonishing no. They, I, He couldn't do anything to get those guys off of him last night. They absolutely bullied him. Yeah. And if I'm Sam Presley watching this thinking, okay, we got a couple of draft picks this year. I think this is a guy that can help us. Now I'm, you know, I'm starting to question. It's like, eh, I throw this guy. I mean, can, can I throw him in the weight room and and get him big and physical and get, get him to where he can take the punishment? But now I think there's a huge question mark on this kid because in the first round, yeah. I like, mean, if you want to take a second round yeah. flyer on him, go for it. But yeah, there's I I I, yeah. I never really I, felt like he was a first round guy anyway. I thought he might be after 15. I really did like him. I was impressed with him up until last night, and then it was just like, no, 
it's not it. And the yeah. thing about Baylor, I think there are three. Baylor is the only team I saw this year where they had multiple guys, not just two, but maybe three, four guys that could actually play in the NBA. I'm not saying the all stars, but they have the athleticism and they have multiple skill sets where you could put you could put them on the floor either in a pinch or to start. I mean, the guy I was probably most impressed with was Macy O.T. And I, the thing that hurts him, one, he's not that big. I don't know how accurate he's going to be when you move the three-point line back, but he's got ball handling skills and he can pass. And I'm envisioning him at 6'4". It's like, okay, I kind of watch him and then close my eyes. And I think of him as being like a prototypical one or a guy that can play two. I only think he's a two-position player in the NBA, and I'm not sure if he can guard other positions than the guard. I don't know at 6'4", if you're going to be able to, to, to guard anything else but, but ones and twos. But certainly, I could see him being a guy that, you know, you're you're bringing on at the five-minute mark in the first quarter. It's like, hey, go out there and get us a few points. Defend. I, I think he's good. Um, I'm going to mess his name up. Chawa. I <laughs> Chachua? Chachua, yes, yeah. him. And um, God, who is the other one? Mitchell. I like Mitchell. I think Mitchell's good. Um, Mitchell just, I mean, a, first of all, he's a. Viney def- is Viney. I mean, I'm Viney. I think all those vital? guys, I'm like, vital. I'm like, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can put these guys in. I mean, these guys can play. Yeah. These guys can, can definitely play at that at that level. And as we saw last night with Gonzaga, you had maybe one, one guy that, that you're saying, all right, this dude is definitely an NBA player. I mean, it was just a complete mismatch, absolute complete mismatch. Yeah, I, I, I think that we, we certainly, I mean, look, Baylor was responsible for a lot of what happened last night, but it, it, you're kidding yourself if you think that that was Gonzaga's best. I mean, from the get-go, there were unforced turnovers and they just look like they for whatever reason and again I'm, I'm not taking anything away here from Baylor I absolutely believe Baylor was the better team but it, I've, I've watched Gonzaga a bunch this year and that was not the same Gonzaga team there there was just a, a gear they were a gear lower the entire night it just felt like I mean they were just off like you know this you have these days in sports where you're just off that wasn't Gonzaga's best game now again Gonzaga at their best, is it closer than last night? Sure, but I'm not saying that Gonzaga beats Baylor at their best, but I think it's easy to identify the fact that they weren't at their best. As far as next-level players, Corey Kispert's going to be a next-level player. He's a 6'7 guy that shoots the three. I mean, he will be there. Jalen Suggs is a top-five pick. In fact, if I'm the Oklahoma City Thunder, that fingers crossed, I would love to have Jalen Suggs. Um, for Baylor, though, like... I, I think almost all those guys could be rotational players. I don't I don't see any of them as like guaranteed NBA starters, but basically everybody that plays for Baylor could be a rotational guy in the NBA. I mean, Vital is like a Draymond Green type dude that's an undersized four, but just a spark plug. I mean, he's a versatile defender, rebounds, can pass the ball. I mean, does all those things that, that you just want uh, to come off the bench maybe uh, if you don't have that position solidified. Jared Butler is probably not big enough to just be your your main option as a scoring guard, but uh, certainly has 
crazy range, and I just I like his game. Uh, Macy Oteague, you mentioned, you know, I think for what his skill set is, he's probably a little bit too small to to be what you would like him to be, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think he could make an NBA roster and certainly be a guy that comes off the bench. Davion Mitchell's de- uh, defense and quickness with the ball in his hands, I think, is elite. So I think he could make a roster. Yeah, I, I th- and, and then the big guys, you know, just as, as pure size, athletic, hey, let's give them a shot and see what happens type situations. Yeah, I think Baylor just has a bunch of dudes that could be on rosters and be rotational guys. Well, and going back to, you know, what you were saying that wasn't their best, in a way, UCLA beat them. I think they were emotionally drained after that UCLA, after that UCLA game. Getting pushed to overtime, almost going into double overtime, needing a, a miracle shot in, in order to win it. And then you get 24 hours to kind of refresh and get mentally ready and come out and play. It'd be one thing if you were playing those types of games all year long. And UCLA, I was in a way, I was surprised that UCLA didn't win that game with it staying so close throughout because that's all they had played in the tournament. They had had the, they'd been forced to come back. They had played in these tight games. They were very comfortable in that situation. And I thought for sure it's like Gonzaga's going to tighten up. You know, when you're winning every game by double digits and you're used to being the best team on the floor, and now someone has really challenged you, can you win? And give them credit. I mean, they made the plays when they need to. They shine when they need to. But I also think that that is emotionally exhausting, and it has that effect where you're watching it if you're Baylor, the, the, the off back, well, I don't know if Baylor was ever in awe of Gonzaga because, again, look at Baylor athletic. I mean, put the, put the kids next to each other, and I think Baylor feels like they're superior athletically. But I think for Gonzaga, it did take some of that invincibility away from them. And they probably went into that Baylor game, if not in the front of their mind, in the back of their mind, yeah, we could lose this. And especially when yeah. you're undefeated, when you haven't felt you haven't felt that loss before, and now that loss means you're not the best team in the country anymore, or people aren't going to view you as the best team in the country anymore. You're not going to win that national championship. Yeah. All of a sudden, all that kind of comes to the surface, and the younger you are, the harder that is to manage. Because now you got, and also you got one shot at this. You're not going to turn around, you know, in in 48 hours and come back and play the team again. You got to get it done tonight. Right, and I all that was just too much for them to handle. Yeah, I think had they beaten UCLA the way that Baylor beat Houston, you probably would have had a better game last night. But it, it just mentally, they look out of it. Yeah, agree. Like and all, especially when you know you're down, you look up. It's like seven to nothing right off the bat. It's like, oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Nine to nothing, right? Yeah, because the biggest deficit yeah. they had faced the the entire tournament was the OU deficit of eight, and Baylor led nine to zero and, and immediately out of the gate had the biggest deficit in the entire thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Look, I don't think, and neither one of us are saying that it changes the outcome, but if you don't think it had an impact, it it absolutely did have an impact. And when your mortality, when when mortality finality. When those two things start to sit in, you start to doubt yourself. 
And that was the first time you saw all year long Gonzaga not look confident. And even though Mark Few was coaching them up to show emotion when you get out there and play, do the things that you've been doing all year long, when they were getting back into it, you can, you can start to see the fist pump with those guys. A, a, yeah. a seasoned championship team doesn't get as emotional as Gonzaga does. There, there's a little bit of calmness there. It's like, okay, we've got it manageable. Yeah. Now we just got to keep coming and give Baylor credit. Every time Gonzaga would make it close and you would think, all right, they're within single digits, Baylor would go on a run. And, and right. at some point, you just get overwhelmed. You're like, yeah, there really is nothing we can do about this because we can't get enough stops. In, in order to to make right. to make this happen, and uh, just kind of when the floodgates open, I, I don't know what you say to your team in the locker room if you're Mark Few. It's like, yeah, it's a great season. I'm proud of you, but you, as a player, you feel like, I mean, you you just feel so far from from what you set out to accomplish. I mean, it just feels like in that moment, it's a million miles away, even though it wasn't. You know, you're going to go look at the banner when you, I mean, when you come back 10 years from now, you're going to look and you see the banner, it's going to say Final Four. It's not going to say National Champions. Right. And that's always going to haunt you. So, I, you know, I feel for Mark, Mark you and, and his coaching staff. Is, I don't know how you get, I, 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 I don't know how you get over losing a game like that. Yeah. I really don't. I just, you know, bottom line is we saw Baylor play at their best last night, right? Like, and, and we've seen them do yeah. that a bunch in, in this tournament. Uh, play at this really high level. Again, that was not Gonzaga's best. But on the flip side of the coin where you talked about, you know, Gonzaga coming back and Baylor then answering, I mean, how many times did it feel like that game was in danger of crossing that threshold where it was just a complete blowout and the white flag might be waved? You know, every time it kind of felt like it was getting to that point, Gonzaga found a way to, to kind of claw back into it. So... Yeah, I, I think that Gonzaga is certainly more capable of playing better basketball than we saw last night, but I don't think ultimately it changes the outcome. I, I think Baylor is the better team. And and simply because I think the only question I really had about this matchup was the interior and the rebounding situation. And just watching Baylor completely dominate that the way that they did, I think even if you get these two teams at their best, again, it's, it's Baylor's game to lose. But... Um, Gonzaga, yeah, I, I I've seen a lot of like they were so overrated comments today, and I'm like, come on, that's that's ridiculous. They weren't they weren't over. I mean, they weren't. I mean, throughout, if you watch the tournament, those were the two best teams right. in the tournament. Right. I don't. I think the only team that could have beaten Gonzaga was the team that beat them last night. Yeah. That's it. I well, I guess you see. I guess you see. could have, but I mean, let's. I mean, let's remember, it's still UCLA. It's still those four letters. And they don't recruit, you know, they don't recruit slugs, as, as Pat Jones would say. <laughs> they, you know, you're still UCLA. You're getting a high level of player, even though they yeah. may not have been typical UCLA this year. There's still something about the name on that jersey that carries some weight. And as we saw, Gonzaga won that game. Even though they were pushed to the brink, they still won that game. I don't know that Michigan would have beaten Gonzaga. I don't think Alabama, you know, I don't know, Alabama, oh, you certainly didn't. 
Um, or was it USC or I can't remember who they played in the in the Elite Eight? Was it USC or Oregon? US, the USC. USC. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah. Okay. All the and they just wiped the floor of, with USC. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a year where if you look at the total, this is where you got to look at the totality of college basketball. And this is where you got to wonder what's going on with the sport when you see that much athleticism, that much talent on one team that is so much better than everybody else. And you have to wonder, is, is that good for the sport? Um, because it wasn't an even matchup when they got there. But yeah, I, I have no doubt in my mind that Gonzaga was the second best team in the country this year. And for the first time in a long time, I don't have a problem saying that, yeah, the best team in college basketball actually won this tournament. Right. Um, but I think they were playing the second best team. I really do think Gonzaga was, was that good. If you watch the tournament, they certainly look the part. Yeah. And there were times if you watched the tournament and paid attention to the game, you were probably going back and forth between those teams because it, it, it became clear probably after the second round that, yeah, these are the two best teams in college basketball. Agreed. Now, Baylor's, Baylor's the most athletic. It looks like they've got the most NBA potential. Gonzaga's really good. They've got some good players. They, they play, they're tight. They play like a well-oiled machine. You know, it's hard to defend them. And everybody else after that was like, you look good. You might have a chance, but, yeah, I, you know, and even that UCLA game, probably most of us going in thought Gonzaga was going to blow them out. Yeah. <laughs> UCLA just I didn't think it was hit a hell close. of a run. Yeah. No, not at all. One for the ages, but it certainly on paper didn't seem to be that way. Although I did say on the show, I will claim that, that if UCLA won, when we look back on it 10 years, we wouldn't consider it that big of an upset because of the history behind UCLA. Yeah. Now, we, we may go back and look at, we're going to go back and look at the point that, like, how, how could anybody have picked, you know, how can anybody think UCLA was 15 points worse than anybody in college basketball because they're UCLA? Well, that's, um, that's my, my, uh, my take a week ago was, how much I love the irony of the undefeated number one team in the country, the team to beat being a mid-major Gonzaga and the underdog being the most accomplished program in college basketball history, <laughs> UCLA. Like that's what college basketball is in 2021. It's the mid-major being yes. the favorite and you know, however, 16 championships or whatever they 13 championships, whatever it is UCLA has as the underdog and the little guy, like the irony of that was just so rich to me that everybody's favorite Cinderella has become the team to beat in college basketball. Well, and Baylor, here's another thing thing about Baylor <laughs> did a lot of athletic directors favors last night. A lot of them, a lot of, if you're a mid major athletic director, Baylor did you a favor because had Gonzaga won that game, you're going to get a whole bunch of people looking at you as an athletic director, wondering why you can't do what Gonzaga did, especially if if you're a school like San Diego in the West Coast Conference or St. Mary's or, um, I don't know, I don't know about Brigham Young. I still think they care more about football than basketball. And it's like, all right, if you want a basketball, great, but go win football. But, you know, there are certain schools that 
have always fancied themselves basketball schools, and they're in these mid-major conferences. And they've seen Gonzaga take off in the last 30 years, and now their athletic directors from their fan bases are under an extreme amount of pressure to do what Gonzaga did. And they're wondering why you can't do that. By Baylor winning, there is now the thought of, okay, well, maybe we can make a run in the tournament, but we're probably not going to be good enough to beat a Power 5 school. So, yeah, we can be good. We can be a Cinderella team, or we can be everyone's favorite. But, you know, obviously, it's still the Power 5 school will we'll ultimately get the best talent. And when we have to face them, you know, in that big moment, we'll get crushed. And that, for athletic directors, that, that takes a lot off your shoulders because what people don't realize, what Mark C was doing isn't the norm. It's yeah. not the norm in, in – in, in, in the West Coast. It's not the norm. You know, it's the norm now at Gonzaga because he made it the norm, but not everyone can do what, what he did. And, you know, it's just the thing. I've seen it. You know, seen it firsthand working in a mid-major market where people were like, well, Gonzaga can do it. Why can't we do it? Well, <laughs> what are you willing to do to do it? You know, I, you know, who are you going out and hiring? Who is your, you know, don't, Tell me about the facilities in the arena and, and all this garbage. Tell me what your philosophy is about basketball and what kind of people you need to recruit and how are you going to make yourself attracted to guys like Jalen Suggs and Drew Timmy. Right. You know, what are you going to do to do that? And with Baylor, you know, going the knockout punch last night, it probably backs a few people off and they probably realize just how, how tough that is to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right there. Uh, are, how, where are you at in the uh, in the one shining moment conversation? Are you a fan or no? Uh, I'm done with it. Oh, boo, <laughs> boo, boo. come on. And, yeah, I am done. I am done with one shining moment. Um, I look. I realize I'm in the minority. I'm gonna get booed like hell here. But I always thought the song. I, it's a cheesy song. Of course it it's cheesy. Really that's, that's the charm of it's it. It's a cheesy song. Um, I always thought the charm of it was was really the video after it. And that's the one, I would say the one thing you do enjoy if you love college athletics and the unbridled joy that college athletics can bring, bring you as a fan. That part of it is great. The, the, the end parts of video going up, that is awesome. However, being Mike Seeley's producer, <laughs> when he used to run the Babe tournament, when he was working midday's at, at WWLS, and he, we'd have to play that song at the end of, of the Babe tournament, which, my God, saying that now is so old. Just so old school sports radio. Yeah. And you're like, you know, this is the first time I really ever paid attention to the song because prior to that, I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. You're just watching the video and the song is, the song at first is innocuous <laughs> to you. Like, you're not paying attention to the song. You're paying attention to the video and you're like, man, yeah. this is really cool. These were a lot of great moments. And you start montage, flashing back yeah. to where you were when you saw certain plays in the montage. And it's like, oh, yeah. But when you hear that song isolated away from the video, you're like, 
holy crap, somebody got paid to write this? <laughs> and Luther Van Luther Vandross, you talk about legend. Luther Vandross is a legend. That man was a, is an American treasure. That's, <laughs> dude, that's such a silky smooth voice. Love Luther Vandross. Man, do I love Luther Vandross. And I remember listening to going, Luther? Oh, this is so beneath you, Luther. No, it's not. Luther, come oh. on. Oh. Luther, you're better than this. That's amazing. You, you stop in the middle of it and, and start singing about <laughs> love. Just, just right now, just sing a love song, Luther. Oh, man. Because, Luther, you're the man. You and Al Green are the man I want on the radio when there is a girl in the car. Luther, come on. Don't. No, no. I don't want to be in the car and think of, like, man, this is really good. Ah, oh, crap. And then one shining moment starts coming on in your head. Now, <laughs> we, we hear the, the, the little trumpet part where it's... Doo-doo-doo-doo. Yes. Yeah. All these tips, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But the video is great. With the montage, is uh, great. Yeah. Away from the montage, yeah. it is a horrible song. Look, that's and fair. You, that's... You, you, I, I, you can't get around it. I don't know. And like, literally, I've never heard of anybody that just listens to the song by itself. When I hear the, like the phrase one shining moment, it means the song accompanied with the video montage. Like they're one in the same, I guess. It's, it's become one of those things that you're CBS though. And I think they found it when they got, um, who was it? Jennifer. Um, oh God. Love her voice. From American Idol. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, the show, not Showgirls. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she, yes, she was. She or not Showgirls, Dreamgirls. Dreamgirls. That's Hudson, Jennifer Hudson. <laughs> Jennifer, G- Jennifer, not Showgirls, Dreamgirls. Yes, yes. Jennifer Hudson falls into what I call the George Michael category. She can't screw up anything. She just can't. I mean, she she's unable to. She, her, and George Michael have this innate ability like you you give them a lyric sheet and you're like here sing these songs and you're going to think they wrote it they pack that much emotion into a song i mean it's just it's one of those things that takes your breath away when both those people sing but her singing one shining moment that's the first thing i've ever heard jennifer hudson sing and go yeah that doesn't work <laughs> it, it, it has to be luther vandross yeah. and your cbs yeah. yes it is a cheesy song but it's come to the point now that if you don't do it at the end of the tournament, you, I mean, you can't not do it at the end of the tournament. It is your stairway to heaven. It is your, it's I mean, it's your finisher. Yeah. Yes. You, I mean, it's your encore, you know, right. it's the, you know, it, it, it's satisfaction. If you're the Rolling Stones, you, you watch the entire concert, but Hey, you know, they haven't played this. Right. It's they not over yet. Come on and do this. Yeah. Yes. They have to come on and do this yeah. song. Although I did see the Stones once, and they actually did not play Satisfaction. Saw Guns oh, N' Roses once, wow. and they didn't play Welcome to the Jungle. What? Saw Guns N' Roses in, yes, 1992, Oklahoma City, and this is on YouTube. Go back and look at it. Guns N' Roses, Smashing Pumpkins open for Guns N' Roses. Smashing Pumpkins gets booed off the stage. Guns N' Roses doesn't show up till 1130, and they go the entire concert without they go an entire two and a half hours without playing Welcome oh, to the Jungle. Oh, what? And I think That's all brutal. of us sat there for like a good like five minutes after the sh- after the show, even with the lights on going, wait a second, you got one more. 
you got one more. And of course, by that time, you know, Axel and Duff were off doing coke or whatever, right. and messing around with strippers. And it was like, how on earth? And it was a killer show. I mean, they played Double Talking Jive. They played Bad Obsession, Pretty Tied Up. They played a lot of cool stuff uh, from Use Your Illusions 1 and 2. But it's like, the song that made us fall in love with you, you just, you, you, you didn't give us. Yeah. And that's what CBS would be if they didn't do right. One Shining Moment. So, do you know, yeah, and CBS it, is aware of that, Eric, because last night going into every commercial break, they teased One Shining Moment. It took an hour to get to it. They felt the need to break down a blowout over and over and over and get everybody's perspective on what happened on the court. I'm like, it was a blowout. We don't need to go over this. Just get to One Shining Moment. But they're very much aware of that. So they tease it going into every commercial break. And One Shining yeah. Moment is coming up very soon. Yeah, it, 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 and well, I mean, you're right about that. But you got to get those. I mean, you got to pay off those sponsors. It's like we got all this, co- we got all this freaking commercial time. We got to yeah. stretch it, stretch it, stretch it. Well, and I'm also curious stretching it. And, and the one thing I've always wondered about the montage is how much of it is put together before that night. And it's always in the whole thing, me. except for those Wait. final like four like the final four shots of the thing. Yes. And that's the thing that impressed me is the quick turnaround on those shots and the rendering and everything else that everybody's doing, including like the, the point where, where you have the celebration or the the winning team knows that they won. And I can only imagine, you know, how quickly and, and frenetically everyone was, working a few years ago when Villanova won it on that last second shot. Right. Because that has to be part of it. And that may be the most impressive thing about it is how quickly they crank that sucker out. Well, that's why they have um, that hour post-game show where they just talk about uh, how you know impressive Baylor was over and over and over. <laughs> They're like, all right, it's got six more minutes, Correct. guys. It's got six more minutes. The video's almost done. Stretch, stretch, Greg, stretch. Yeah. We can't find this one shot. <laughs> We've got to get this one shot in here. Gotta fight it. Yeah. Kill. Yeah. Uh, Ask Charles Barkley a question. He can go on forever. Just do it. There you go. There you go. Hey, before I let you run today, um, one of the the main things I wanted to get your opinion on was the uh, the Porter Moser hire. Um, I think this was a home run. I, we talked about last week what the OU job was, and I think we were both on the same side of things. When you have somebody like Joe C. as your athletic director, it makes that job infinitely better just because of the stability he brings to the entire athletic department. I think that that was very much, you know, the the case when you consider someone like Porter Moser that is probably viewed as highly as, as maybe anybody in college basketball right now based on what he's accomplished over the last few years to take the Oklahoma job. Well, it, it's it one, I think, following up, Long Kruger, I think following Long Kruger is a difficult task in terms of being a person. I Long Kruger has has he is so classy, and, and there is just an element of class about him that very few people in, in this world can get into. I mean, he is as genuine as they come. So going from him to a personality that is opposite of that would not have fit at OU. And if you read what Barry Henson had to say about Porter Bozier, he certainly fits. And I think Joe Castiglione was acutely aware of that and went, I got to get somebody that, 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 that fits in the mold of Long Kruger. As far as it, 
I think in that part of it, it was a home run. As far as the basketball part of it goes, it's like every other hire that has happened at OU to me since Dave Blitz, who was really a no one when he got hired. And then there was Billy Tubbs. And then there was um, Kelvin Sampson, who was at Washington State, and Jeff Capel, who was at VCU. And Long Kruger, who you thought was going to retire at UNLV, retire at UNLV because he'd just been a house. It's, you know, extremely warm weather out there in Vegas. He's at a basketball school. Is a million dollars going to make that much of a difference? Because he's getting everything he wants there. And then you got him, but it, it's always been a guy that, that you go, okay. I just sort of just shake my head. I'm like, all right, let's let's see where this goes. It doesn't sound it sounds like a good hire, but I don't know. It's, there's never been an OU basketball hire that I've been just like, yeah, they got that guy. <laughs> but I don't know what I don't know if it's a job where you can get quote unquote that guy, so to speak. That um, who would have been that guy like this year? Oh, I think there was only really one guy that fell into that category, and that would have been Chris Beard. Okay, and, and he went. To Texas, um, I was a big Paul Mills fan. I think if you had gotten Paul Mills, it would have been it, it would have been just as good a hire as Porter Mosier. Again, you are talking about a guy coming from Oral Roberts. He's a hot name, but it's not like you're hiring Roy Williams. This is not Roy Williams going from Kansas to North Carolina or Bill Self going from Illinois to Kansas. Um, you know, guys that you you knew we're on a trajectory to win a national championship, but he's a guy at 52, still young, um, has had success in the NCAA tournament, which again, as we've established is the only thing that matters in college basketball. And he doesn't, he, by the virtue of him being at loyal of Chicago for 10 years, you come to one of two conclusions, either he's not a job jumper and an interview king, um, which is a good thing, which means he likes to stay put, or he just never really had that opportunity, which is a bad thing because you want a guy who is wanted by other schools because it shows that they see value in him and that he is probably going to be successful. I am going to say it's the former, that he's not a job jumper, that he's not an interview king, that he values stability, and at 52 – Maybe he wants to stay at OU long term. And for that, I think that would be the best thing that, that Joe Castiglione could do, provided he's successful. And successful at OU means one thing getting to the NCAA tournament, win games in the NCAA tournament. You don't even that you can win a Big 12 championship, but nobody at OU is going to put pressure on you to win a Big 12 championship in basketball because does it really matter? It's a nice thing to have, have but if you win a Big 12 championship, and you're knocked out by the first or second round of the NCAA tournament, no one cares. No one absolutely cares yeah. how good your season was. So, I, And I think for him, I think anybody taking the OU job, why I honestly think, here's the thing, I will tell you that any job in the Big 12 is one of the best jobs in college basketball um, because the conference is so highly thought of. Man, if you can finish fifth or sixth, you get your ticket punched. And especially if you're at a, in a conference where, where he was, where it's like, we could be really good. We lose in our tournament. Dude, I get in. 
no matter what we did in the past, don't keep me out. So if you're a coach in his position, yeah, you should be beating down the door to coach K-State, Iowa State, um, TCU, wherever, because it just it gives you such a wide margin of error. And I also think that, that those jobs are generally good because there are a lot of football schools. Yeah. And in football schools, the, there's just not there's not near as much pressure on the basketball coach. Yeah. I think they're absolutely perfect jobs. And, and Porter Mosier, I think it's the thing he's going to find most comforting about Oklahoma is now he's not the BMOC. And as great as that may sound to some, with that comes a lot of demand. You can't yeah. get away from people. It, it, you know, he starts off, he hits a, a stretch in December where he loses two out of three or they're scuffling going into conference play. Hey, if OU is getting ready to play in the college football playoffs, no one's going right. no to be writing dirty yeah. email. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can hide out, you can get your team together, and then, you know, two weeks after football season's over, depending on what happens in those playoffs, yeah. then people say, all right, it is basketball season, we got to pay attention to this. And then, and then at that point, if you're good and winning, they'll be like, huh, okay, so yeah, we're good here. Too. Yeah. Well, I think he's going to love it. I, I, I'm more excited for him than I am necessarily excited about him. I think he's going to love it at OU. I can't yeah. help but love coaching basketball at that school. Well, he grew up 45 minutes from Chicago. So, like, when you ask, like, why did he stay there for 10 years? Is he just not a job jumper? Did he not have those opportunities? I, I, he was home, right? Like, he gets to coach basketball in Chicago 45 minutes away from where he grew up. So, uh that to me is just a no brainer. I don't, I don't necessarily look at that as anything, but he's at home and you know, a lot of people that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, Oh, use a perfect situation for all the reasons you just mentioned. Uh, but I, I do think that Porter Moser at, at Loyola, if, if like Kentucky had, had come available, I think he's one of the guys that Kentucky is considering. I, I think that he's done that much at little Loyola, Chicago. And look, as far as that goes, what else was there left for him to do? Because short of winning a national championship there, like what is he going to do to top, you know, going to the final four and then beating the number one seed to go to the sweet 16, two years later. I, I don't know that there's uh I mean, he had, he had just accomplished so much there that I, I think uh, it was probably the perfect time to, to make that jump. If you're going to make well, it. And let me ask you that about Mark Pugh real quick. What 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 does he have left to do at Gonzaga? I mean, especially had he won last night. I understand you're you're there. You're going to. I mean, again, you are the BMOC, and and all the athletic yeah. resources are going to go to you. But is there a point where you're him? You're like, okay, we won a national championship. We're going to be really good every year. Are we going to be Duke? Are we going to be near North Carolina? Are we going to, you know, win three, four years, five years? Probably not. And, and does he start thinking about the NBA, or does he start thinking about other challenges that that could be out there? And I, I keep wondering if that's, that's on his mind. Mark Hughes doesn't seem like the type that would leave, but every coach always wonders. They always wonder: could they replicate the success? at a particular school or in the NBA or, you know, is he tired of recruiting? What, what is, I kind of, I, I do wonder what he's thinking. I kind of wonder what Scott Drew's thinking now too. You spent eight, 18 years at Baylor. 
it's probably not going to get any better than this. You are probably not going to be what the women's program is. Um, you're probably not going to run off a string of Big 12 championships the way that Kansas did. Is there another more basketball-friendly job that he might he might want to step out and take here in the ne- here in the next few years? Yeah, eighteen years is a long time to be in one place. That that yeah, that kind of blows my mind that he's been there that long. I mean, he said it last night. I'm like, eighteen years. What yeah. was he talking about? Yeah. Oh my god, he has been there eighteen years. I, I don't see Mark Few leaving. Like, I guess if, if uh, Coach K were to retire and Duke called or maybe, like, Kentucky called, I, I think there's probably, like, a handful of places that he would listen. But, like, why would you leave? It? Let's just, for the sake of argument, say that Oklahoma and Oklahoma State and Texas were open. I wouldn't leave Gonzaga for any of those jobs. Like, Gonzaga right now is in a much better position from a basketball standpoint and a year-in, year-out competitive standpoint than any of those schools. I, I, I mean, it just makes zero sense for him to leave Gonzaga to go no, I don't coach think, I don't, in, a, in, a, in a power conference unless it's a Kentucky or a Duke or, you know, something like that. But, I, yeah, I, just, you, I don't see but it. That's, and, and that's what I'm talking about with him. Does UCLA, you know, if, if Mick Cronin can't win a national championship at UCLA, which there, that's the only thing that matters. Um, it, which is ridiculous, but that's all they care about there. Yeah. Does, does, you, does UCLA appeal to him? And I, like you said, if, if Bill Self, who just signed a, in air quotes, a lifetime contract in Kansas, yeah, if Bill Self decides to retire, is Kansas a job that he would take? I think it would have to be basketball royalty for him to leave Gonzaga or it would have to be a shot in the NBA. And, and I don't think he would just take any NBA job. I think he would take an NBA job where he was extremely comfortable with the GM, where you had a roster that that was kind of already built and you could, you could slide in there and it was, it was somewhat of a turnkey operation where maybe they were good, but they just hadn't won a championship yet. I think he would leave for that kind of job. I don't think he would leave for a situation like the Thunder are in now where it's like, hey, he gets coaching the NBA, but we have no idea who's going to be on the roster other than Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Lou Dort. Are you interested? it's going to have to be a perfect situation because he's going to win. He's going to win at Gonzaga, but I do believe that he probably is wondering how much more successful he could be at a few other places. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, For Scott Drew, who knows? I mean, I think, yeah, I think that could go a number of ways. Um, I could see him deciding to take something else on. I could see him just saying, you know what, we're going to stick around. We've been here 18 years. Um, just pretty much got the. If, I mean, if you've been somewhere that long, um, I mean, you 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 pretty much can do whatever you want to do. I mean, I, he could probably rattle off five straight losing seasons and not be on the hot seat now. Right. So I mean that. Hey, you won a national championship at Baylor. That that that's going to ride for a long time. You're going to make a lot of money off that, not just off your contract, but there are going to be so many groups that want you to come speak at Waco. I mean, you are. Yeah. I mean, you supersede Kim Kim Mulkey now on that campus, but don't tell her that because that would go <laughs> very bad if you told her that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I mean, you're now bigger than football on that campus, which doesn't happen very often. 
Um, you may be a bigger deal than Grant Taft at the moment. So ride that train as long as, long as you can because it's not going to last long. It's not, you know, the, the, this isn't going to last long. It's going to last for about two or three years. And then when football gets good again, everybody's going to kind of go back to that because it's, it's Texas. And football's always going to be bigger than basketball. But yeah, play it up. Get any improvements that you need to make to the to, to the facilities. Ask, they'll give it to you. You're in a really good position for at least the next the next three years. Just continue. Just continue to win in the tournament. Continue to get to the Sweet Sixteen and point to that national championship banner, and all will be all will be well. <laughs> no doubt. All right, my friend. Uh, we will catch up again next Tuesday. Sounds like a plan, man. Thanks for having me on. Always fun, buddy. Have a good week. You too. Thanks to Eric G. for joining me on the Colby Daniels Podcast, presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Check out their line of natural medicine products, including Kratom, CBD, and Delta 8. If you're unfamiliar with these products or their health benefits, call Artisan Botanicals. It's all about educating yourself, and they have a staff dedicated to helping you live a better life. So 405-458-9699. Plus, when you order online at abotanicalcompany.com, use the discount code COLBYSHOW and you save 15% off your online order. It's very simple, very safe and efficient pickup. They have a drive through window, so no reason not to order online. Save 15%, pick it up safe and efficiently. Again, abotanicalcompany.com. Everybody, have a great day, stay safe, and I'll see you tomorrow. Podcast is over.